0: Welcome to Sport Management Review Insights. I'm your host, Vito Subra. Sport's biggest issue in recent times has been the COVID pandemic. No doubt about it, it's impacted everything. But let's not forget there's another major problem for sport that isn't going away anytime soon. Climate change. In this episode, that's what we're going to focus on. And more specifically, sports carbon footprint. We have an absolutely amazing guest to discuss this issue. She's a multi-award winning researcher who's published nearly 300 research papers in all kinds of sports issues in both German and English. And let's not forget her thousands of citations. She's professor for sport management and sports sociology at Bielefeld University. It's Pamela Wicker. Good morning. Good morning. It's great to have you on. Uh, When I was researching what you've done, uh, I had to keep scrolling down there's so much so thanks so much for, for giving us some time to talk about what you've done in carbon footprint
1: i'm very happy to do that you're more than welcome
0: pamela recently published the carbon footprint of active sport participants and usually, Pamela, when I think of carbon footprint, kind of think of my like shoe sticking to the ground with some carbon. Uh, but I guess that's not really what it means. It means more than that. How, how does this review on carbon footprint of active sport participants help us understand sport and climate change and, and the way that's all impacting each other?
1: Well, the, the study of um, active sport participants and their carbon footprint, it's actually about the environmental impact that sport participation courses the environmental impact that I've studied is the carbon footprint and you're right it's actually not really a carbon footprint so it's not something that you leave on the floor with your foot and um, that would rather be an ecological footprint so within um, environmental research there's also some confusions about the concepts that are used you know and the concept is called carbon footprint but it, it is actually more about the emissions that are caused so specifically the carbon dioxide emissions so Carbon footprint is a is a concept that is uh, made up of um, carbon dioxide equivalent emissions. So when we look at all the, the greenhouse gases, um, there are many greenhouse gases, but carbon footprint has the largest share of the greenhouse gas emissions. There are also other greenhouse gases, and these emissions are basically converted into carbon dioxide equivalents. So greenhouse gases basically have a, a global warming impact, and that global warming impact is transferred or converted into the the impact that carbon dioxide would have on global warming. So we have um, carbon dioxide equivalent emissions, and that is what climate researchers or environmental researchers call the carbon footprint. So it's the, the summary of carbon dioxide emissions that is coursed in that case by sports participants traveling to to weekly training sessions to their sport facilities, maybe to league competitions to sports competitions tournaments but also to training camps and um, training holidays and in some sports people also do day trips you know in surfing or walking people do day trips and they also travel back and forth so that is basically what the study is about. So trying to, to estimate the, the annual carbon footprint of all sorts of active sport participants across a range of sports and for different participation purposes.
0: Why do you think it was important to focus on, on active sport participants? Because we know there's massive environmental impact of elite sport, I think of Formula One and its impact. Why do you think active sport participants were important to be looked
1: at as well? Well, I looked at the body of research and there were many studies that have been conducted in the context of sport events, you know, professional sports events, but also um, amateur sport events. And I thought, well, this is just one part of the story, just the sport event context. And um, I think we have so many sport participants across the country in Germany that includes club members, but also non-club members. And I think um, when people travel or commute to training sessions or go to sport competitions um, they also cause emissions so I think there was a large share of the environmental impact left that has not yet been studied so I thought I look at the majority of, of sport participants so not through the lens of a specific event or a specific sport but just to do it a bit broader that was the idea behind it.
0: You've got the conceptualization of carbon footprint. As you mentioned, that's not straightforward. It's not necessarily what people think. How did you manage that when when you're looking at this? How did you just zero in? Okay, this is what I'm focusing on.
1: Well, it actually took me a a while to get my head around that, that study and that overall project. It was a few years ago when I actually wanted to do some research on environmental impacts of sport. But at the beginning, I had no idea how to really do it. So I, I needed to get a handle on how to actually measure the environmental impact. And then I was at the on the website of our federal environmental office and I saw that list of emission factors. So the overview basically, who shows which transportation means cause which emissions. So they give you a specific number. So, for example, when... When people travel with a passenger car or a local tram, a short distance railway train, then they give you a specific number reflecting the carbon dioxide equivalent emissions that are caused. So, of course, these are only average values coming from from extensive research on the transportation behavior of people in Germany. At the end of the day, of course, people have no idea what level of emissions they produce when they travel from A to B or when they use a car or when they use a a city train or a tram. Um, But the only thing they can probably report and what they are aware of is the travel distance. So people would probably know how many kilometers they live away from the sport facility where they train every week. And they could also report when they've been to a training camp where that was. So they can report the destination. And then we could basically look up the the distance on Google Maps. And people would also know where they have done sports competitions or where they had league games. We can actually look up the distance and using these emission factors, we can convert that information into carbon footprint. But it took me a while to get my head around that idea and for the idea to, to flourish and to be put into research practice, actually.
0: So for a while there, you're kind of an environmental scientist.
1: Yeah, probably thinking to be a bit longer than actually doing something on the, on the topic. So I've, I was actually inspired during my time in, in Australia when I worked at Griffith University. I had a colleague who did research on sustainable tourism and we had a joint paper in 2013 But As you can see from the publication record, there was a huge gap between my my first environmental paper and and my second, so it's a gap of five years. So I had to get my head around how I can actually um, build on that research in in Germany.
0: How did uh, understanding this now, and also your understanding of sport and active sport participants, how did all that help you formulate your hypothesis?
1: I think it also helps to formulate the research design first. So because, you know... um, what sports have which participation purposes and actually all the types of purposes that you need to consider. So the weekly training, the competitions, the league games. I think that was quite helpful. And also I had some students who assisted me with the data collection because collecting data for, for 20 different sports is also a bit of a challenge and sometimes also a mess. So, of course, having some, some background in, in active sports helps for, for the whole design of the, of the research And for the hypothesis, um, I think it helps to look into the literature. And that was really helpful because um, the environmental literature, I found, was quite well developed already.
0: And what were your hypotheses? I think it's hypotheses. I, I think I've got that right. I think you had four hypotheses in the end.
1: Yeah, that's right. Um, I think the obvious one is to kind of relate people's level of environmental consciousness to their um, carbon footprint. So in that sense, carbon footprint is considered a measure of pro-environmental behavior with um, people having a high carbon footprint actually showing a low level of pro-environmental behavior. So the relationship is here the other way around. And that was an interesting one because according to the literature and theories like the theory of plant behavior and also earlier models of pro-environmental behavior, um, everybody would assume and um, also the intuitive assumption would be that people who say I'm environmentally conscious, that they also behave in that manner. But then when we look at um, the literature in more detail and also at some of the empirical findings, we can see that um, this is not always the case. So that environment. And environmental behavior is actually a context where behavioral intentions do not automatically transform into the actual behavior. Researchers call that the environmental value action gap, where the values do not translate automatically into pro-environmental behavior. And that's an interesting one because it depends on the, the amount of costs that people perceive. When we know that using a car, Causes a higher carbon footprint than using a, a public bus or a tram. So basically, public transportation. Then people perceive that there are costs associated with that, and it's not only time and money, but also convenience. And researchers basically call these um, high cost situations. So when people perceive that the the costs of using public transport are too high, then I would generally say I'm environmentally conscious, but in that case, I do not behave in that manner. So that is what the. The value action gap basically causes, so when the perceived costs are, are too high. And I think that's an interesting combination. And I would be curious to see if there are also other situations in, in life where such value action gaps occur. So I would probably assume that it might also be the case related to health, healthy behavior, sport participation. So many people probably know that it's it's good to practice sport. It's good for your health. It's good for your well-being. But the perceived costs are too high to actually showcase that behavior.
0: Just back to to your study here on, on active sport participants. I guess you kind of had to define who they were before you started getting your survey data because you, you used a survey. So how did you define your active sport to participant?
1: Yeah, I defined them as people who practice regularly sport. So on a weekly basis, that means active in, in that case. Of course, that's a tricky one. We also have members in German sport clubs who are passive members. You know, they just pay the fee and they also show up in in membership figures, but they, they never see a facility from the inside. So we had to make sure that these are excluded from the study. We looked at adult sport participants. So basically people need a certain age to drive a car in Germany and that affects your transportation behavior. And I think that's the core of the study. Looking at the different transportation means And it's also, of course, an issue with survey distribution and ethics. So the adults are the focus. And also another criterion was that people had to have their main residency in Germany, because when we distribute surveys in German, also people from Austria and Switzerland can reply. And some of them did as well. But these emissions factors, they are only relevant to a specific geographic location. So these are the emission factors for Germany, because they reflect that the typical transportation behavior of Germans and, for example, the emission factor that is used for cars, passenger cars. This, this factor reflects the, the, the cars that Germans typically drive and not people in Austria or Switzerland. So it's a geographically specific thing. And so that was the third restriction that people actually had to live in Germany to make sure that these emission factors actually apply to them.
0: So you had to compare the German apples with the German apples. And not with the Swiss and Austrian apples
1: exactly that's right, even though apparently some people from the other two countries also participated in the survey, but we had to remove them from the data. I'm very sorry for that
0: yeah, sorry Swiss and Austrians, but but next time next time when, when Switzerland and Austria does this great research in, in your country now, what were in the the surveys, and why did you think the a, a survey was was the best way to collect this data
1: well at, at the end of the day. To, to calculate the carbon footprint, we needed to get information about people's travel behavior, specifically the travel distances and the transportation means. And I thought that a survey is best to actually get to that information. And also when we want to know about people's level of environmental consciousness, we have to ask them. So there's no publicly available database where every German um, is recorded and his or her level of environmental consciousness. There's a lot of important information that you only get when you ask people also about the number of hours they practice per week and if they do sports competitions or not, and how they would assess their performance levels. So this is just information you get from people when you ask them. So doing a quantitative survey was the obvious choice. So I think in these surveys, it's always a good start to ask people um, about the sports that they do, how many times they do that per week, how many hours, what they think about their performance level, then if they do any competitions or participate in league games. And so the tricky information is in the middle of the survey and at the end of the survey we just ask the social demographic questions but that's also an experience um, when you practice sport yourself and you get to know many people who are also active people like to report about what they do Uh, for example in my triathlon club people love to report how much they train and what they train specifically so that's always a good a good icebreaker at the start of the survey to let actually people talk about the things they love to talk about. Get to the more tricky questions in the middle.
0: I think that's a really clever strategy because I was actually playing golf the other day and someone hit a birdie and I was sure they would have put that in that survey. It would have been the first thing they said.
1: Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah.
0: So you, you've built it up brilliantly. We've got this idea, these hypotheses and, and an excellent survey with, with great strategy. What did you find?
1: Well, at the end of the day, we found uh, a diverse um, range of carbon footprints, actually. A very interesting outcome was that when we look at all the individual sports, the carbon footprint or the annual carbon footprint was twice as high as in team and racket sports. So people who do individual sports apparently have a higher level of emissions. And I, within individual sports, I also distinguished between nature sports, so sports that are done or are um, practiced within the natural environment and that also need kind of a natural environment. To enjoy the sport so for for example surfing or walking or skiing so that was surprising that that actually the nature sports had the highest carbon footprint that's a bit of a a paradox here and you would assume that these are the people um, who care most about the environment but at the end of the day it turns out that they do the highest damage to the environment when you compare that with other sports other individual sports and also the team and record sports
0: I assume that's because they have to travel further to get to that natural environment.
1: Yeah, and it's it's these sports where people do these day trips. Yeah, we can also see that from the the results here.
0: And what did you find with the environmental consciousness and and socio-demographics? How did they relate?
1: Well, for the environmental consciousness, that was um, an interesting finding because when we look at the overall sample, the effect was as expected by the theoretical assumptions. So that people with a higher level of environmental consciousness were found to have a lower carbon footprint. But this was not the case for the individual sports. And it was also not the case for the Nature sports, which is quite interesting. So it was only the case for team and record sports. This is basically where the results of the full sample were were driven by.
0: So there you go. Team sports. Those are the ones.
1: Yeah. So apparently in team sports, pro-environmental intentions translate into pro-environmental behavior, but that was not the case in the individual and the nature sports. So we can see that environmental action gap here. So for these sport participants, apparently perceived costs are too high in terms of money, time and, and convenience.
0: I'm proud. No, I identify with the team sports people. So I'm proud of them. Good on them. Now, what does this all mean? How, how does this advance our understanding of, of sport and its environmental impact and, of course, carbon footprint?
1: Yeah, I think to make some implications, I think it's first important to get an idea of of what the actual numbers are. So what is the current situation? So how big is the impact that sports produces? Are there any variations um, among sports? And what are the characteristics or what are the types of participants that cause the highest level of emissions? So, of course, intuitively, we can also see from the results that people with a higher performance level, they also have a higher carbon footprint which intuitively makes sense because when I have a higher performance level, I need to travel to more distant competitions. I do not only compete locally, but people also compete on a regional level and also maybe nationally or internationally, they probably train more. They go more frequently on, on training camps. They have more competitions further away. So that also makes sense. So I think all that has implications for the structure of the sports system and maybe also the scheduling of, of competitions.
0: And how did this uh, advance the, the understanding of the, the conceptual framework that you used here?
1: I think it gave some, some evidence that um, environmental consciousness is important here. But there are also costs associated with pro-environmental behavior and emissions. And it's not always the direct choice of the athlete, because when you are a, a squad athlete and you have a specific performance level, you cannot say, oh, sorry, I don't travel to this competition. It's too far away. It's, it has a ne- negative amb- impact on my carbon footprint. Yeah, So that maybe has also implications for those who schedule competitions and who, who set up the, the specific Date and, and travel schemes. And maybe people can also reflect if they need to fly to a training camp every time, whether it's not possible to go there with public transportation or, or by car or to just do their training camps in, more, in regions that are closer to their home.
0: Maybe cyclists can just cycle to their training camp.
1: That's, that's one option, though. Um, there are probably costs in terms of convenience and uh, transportation, the luggage. <laughs> But you know, you've talked about golf, so there's. A, we also know that some people just fly to to Spain to have a weekend of playing golf. You know, and you can just wonder: is is this really necessary? Personally, I'm I'm doing triathlon, and you know that some some people they and even the the mass sport participants, so athletes with a relatively low level of performance. They even fly to competitions in, in Spain and, of course, some fly to Hawaii. But, of course, that's the Ironman World Championships, but also to, to other sorts of competitions. And you can wonder yeah, whether that is really necessary. But, of course, it's the it's broader debate. And for, for some people, it's part of their leisure, part of their lifestyle. It's really relevant to their lifestyle. You know that you can say, oh, I've, I've been at a competition in, in Nice or in, in Spain or wherever. So I think we need to look at the broader picture here. But I, I think at the end of the day, the results show that there are some some indicators that drive the carbon footprint, which gives some, some hints for, for changes and possible implications.
0: So you mentioned there a bit like what individuals can do, how they can consider this. What about sport organizations? What what can they do to, to try and, and tackle this issue?
1: Yeah, for sport organizations, I think um, the sport governing bodies, they are responsible for the scheduling of the sport competitions, for example. So within team sports, they schedule um, the league. And when um, teams play against each other, in individual competitions, um, there are also sometimes league games and sports competitions i can give you a practical example from my from my own triathlon club so i was a a support of our second bundesliga division team and we were driving five hours to a city in the eastern part of germany and we had two buses full of athletes and there are many many triathlon clubs that are close to cologne you know like within a radius of 50 kilometers of From Cologne, I think there are another six or seven triathlon clubs and all these clubs were traveling with at least one or two buses to that um, competition in the eastern part of Germany. So that is a thousand kilometers per bus. And you can raise the question if if that is really necessary, you know, if you can maybe choose destinations for competitions that are more closer to where most of the athletes actually come from. So I think that would, would be an obvious example. And for example, we know that the German Volleyball League, they've already scheduled um, specific weekend game days, you know, when teams from, from the eastern part of Germany come to, to the western rhine main region, then they play against two teams there, basically to avoid that everybody's traveling back and forth, which is of course also costly in terms of, of time, money, so it might be more efficient. So I think when we think about the the structuring of, of leaks, the scheduling, then there's an opportunity to, to to cut emissions or to reduce emissions. Well it's it's not like we have to reduce the emissions or cut them down to zero. It's just about saving a bit here and there and and making sure that board is not such a large contributor to to global warming and climate change
0: and every little bit helps like you said it yep. sounds like it's going to help them economically as well because you know scheduling things that that way is going to save some money too
1: yeah because when you when you travel by car then that of course is also costly and other travel as well
0: Thanks so much for joining us, Pamela. That was uh, fantastic research and, and I think really helpful too to, to understand the issue and for sport organizations and individuals in their thinking about carbon footprint.
1: Thank you, Vitor, and thanks to R for having me here.
0: And thanks for listening to Sport Management Review Insights. Please head to the Sport Management Review website to check out all the latest research being published, including the article discussed in this episode, The Carbon Footprint of Active Sport Participants from Volume 22, Issue 4. That's it for this episode, but keep a lookout. There'll be more dropping in your favorite podcast player soon. Until then, it's bye for now.